0: Well, you may uh, like to um, have uh, the handout that I uh, had uh, inserted into the bundle of things that you had when you came in with you. Uh, This uh, handout has a number of quotes on, uh, which is probably the main reason for me um, producing it, so that as I quote one or two long quotes, you can at least stay with it. But it also has uh, a framework for um, this morning's sermon. So do have a good look at that, if you will. A nine-year-old girl walking home from school saw her grandmother waving to her on the other side of the road. Delighted to see her grandmother, she ran across the road and was hit by a passing car. She was rushed to hospital but pronounced dead on arrival. A newly married Christian couple returned from honeymoon, having had the holiday of a lifetime and, quote, as happy as anyone could be. Two weeks later, he began to feel lethargic and, after blood tests, received a telephone call from the doctors to come to the surgery as soon as he could he was diagnosed with cancer and was dead before their first wedding anniversary a committed Christian woman married a Christian man or at least one who professed to be a committed Christian he'd been fully involved in their church and yet shortly after they married he stopped going to church his non-attendance turned to renouncing his faith and then sometime later declaring himself a committed follower of another faith altogether he became verbally abusive at home and demanded that his wife no longer attend church, and insisted she become a follower of his faith. Finally he left her. Her mother took her nine-month-old son to the doctors after the little boy had been crying incessantly and showing a high temperature. The doctor sent her home and told her to give the little boy regular doses of Calpol. Showing no signs of improvement, she took him back to the surgery on two following days, each time being told the same thing. And on the fourth day she took him to hospital where he was diagnosed with meningitis. Although treated, by now the disease had taken hold and the little boy was left brain damaged, deaf and blind. They're real stories of real people that I've known over the past 18 years in pastoral ministry. I could tell you other stories, some of them you'll be well aware of because they've happened since I've been here. Stories of tragic accidents and inexplicable suffering. Suffering is everywhere, and all of us will experience it at some point in life. Uh, Jerry Sitzer makes that point in this uh, excellent little book, A Grace Disguised. He says, loss is as much a part of normal life as birth, for as surely as we are born into this world, we suffer loss before we leave it. Uh, Don Carson makes the same point. He says, the truth of the matter is that we all, have to, all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Our lov- loved ones will die. We ourselves will be afflicted with some disease or other. Midlife often brings its own pressures, disappointments, fa- sense of failure, decreasing physical strength, infertility. Parents frequently go through enormous heartache in rearing their children. Pain and suffering comes to us all. As I prepare this sermon series on suffering, many of you will know that my own mum has recently been diagnosed with cancer in the liver, kidney, lung and bowel. She's currently having fortnightly chemotherapy, uh, doses of chemotherapy and that chemotherapy leaves her feeling ghastly and wondering whether she can continue with the treatment. Suffering is everywhere now, we can't avoid it. And so over these next five Sundays, I want to begin to touch on the massive subject of suffering. I'm all too aware that as I do this, that five weeks is nothing to deal with such a huge subject, and yet I hope that we will find that it is better than nothing. Before we leap into this huge subject, though, this morning, allow me to make uh, two introductory uh, comments. Uh, The first one on the front page there, uh, preventative medicine. I see the next five weeks as what I might call preventative medicine, uh, you see, we've put this series together to prepare people now for when the time of suffering comes in the future. Uh, to prevent us from falling apart when suffering comes. Not with simplistic answers, not with trite answers, but with something that will be rounded and will help us at least to put our suffering uh, into some sort of framework. Uh, It's important that we realise that really this series is for helping people now, for when the day comes, rather than helping people now as they suffer. Uh, It is rarely possible, for, or pastorally wise indeed, to be teaching people a theology of suffering when they are suffering. In spending time with my mum at the moment, I am making no attempt to pass on to her a theology of suffering. I try to answer questions when she raises them, Uh, But really all I'm doing is praying for her and supporting her where I can. See, it's not the time to be grappling with the theology of suffering when you're going through suffering. And so this series is not really directed at those who are suffering. It's directed at those who are not personally suffering at the moment. uh, So that, when it comes, they will be able to cope. Uh, Again, let me quote Don Carson uh, from this book, How Long, O Lord... He says, uh, one of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with with the God who disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. Do you see the point? It is usually too late to be constructing a theology of suffering while we are suffering. And so let me gently say, if you're going through a particularly hard time at the moment, and I know there are a good number of people in this congregation who are, while I hope these next weeks will be helpful, I'm aware that this is not the time for you to be working out your theology. Now is the time for us as God's family to simply to be here for you, to pray for you, to carry you through, and if we can, to help you practically where we can. So these next five weeks are largely aimed... Uh, At those who are not suffering it is preventative medicine Uh, secondly my uh, second point on the handout over the page is that uh, suffering is tough for christians Uh, it's tough for everybody but it is particularly tough for christians as uh, tim said earlier in a very real sense the problem of evil and suffering is a greater problem for the christian than for the unbeliever Look, I imagine we've often met people, unbelievers, who dismiss the existence of God out of hand because of the existence of suffering. Now, I will address that problem and that issue next week. But in a very real sense, Christians struggle intellectually with the problem of suffering in a way that others don't. Similarly, as Tim said earlier, Chris Wright, in his book, The God I Don't Understand, explains it like this. For Christians, evil really is a problem at every level. On the basis of what the Bible teaches, unequivocally and repeatedly, we Christians believe that there is one living God, the creator of the whole universe, who is personal, good, loving, omnipotent, and sovereign over all that happens. Now, once you're convinced of those great biblical truths about the living God, you cannot but have a massive problem with the existence of evil. Now, for that reason... Uh, we're going to begin this week by looking at the origins of suffering, considering why there is suffering in the world at all. And again, just as one final little remark before we leap into this subject, let me say this week we are looking at big global themes and so you may go away at the end of this morning thinking, but what about my suffering? What does this mean for my specific situation? I don't know that we can ever completely answer that, but we are going to try to do some of the specifics and the, uh, the more sort of down-to-earth personal suffering later on in these next five weeks. For now, it's this big global thought. As we begin, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, page 3 in, in your Bibles. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Now, whatever you make of the early chapters of Genesis, and I know there's uh, much debate over how we are to understand them, uh, whatever your view of the mechanics of how the world came into being, there are two things that Genesis chapter 1 teaches us that is not in question, I believe, amongst any biblical Christians. The two things are this, that God created the world and that he made it a good world. Look, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created the world. And then the constant refrain in in this opening chapter of the Bible is that he made the world good. You'll see it in verse 4, first of all. I'll read from verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. Look down to verse 9, you'll see it again. God said, "Let let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so, God called the dry ground land and gathered the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Yes, he made the sea and the sea is spectacularly good, isn't it? When I've been by the coast, I have loved spending hours simply watching the sea, whether it be the waves crashing in during a storm or the gentle lapping of the surf on a calm sunny day. The sea is both majestic and relaxing, it is mesmerising, it is good. And there it is again, this fact that God made the world good in verse 12. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. The fruit of the land is good. Whether it be a a fruit cocktail, a perfectly ripe pear or beautifully cooked crunchy vegetables, the taste and the texture exploding onto my taste buds is good. Verse 17, the same point. God set the sun and the moon in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the the day and the night and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. The magnificent sunrise that greeted me when I awoke earlier this week was spectacularly good. Verse 21, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the waters teem according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I love trips to the zoo, to the aviary, to see the birds, to the aquarium, to see the funny things that live in the sea, the sights and the sounds, the colours and the movement. These things make life rich and varied. They are good. And then over the page, uh, verse 25 God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. On Wednesday evening, I, I just caught a glimpse of the latest BBC wildlife documentary, "Great Nature's Great Events," about a polar bear. It was fascinating. I love watching those things. And uh, our children love watching wildlife docu- documentaries, uh, learning about the, uh, the animals, uh, their habitat, seeing their behaviour. It's absorbing. This is a good world. And then finally, right at the end of the chapter, the Lord God made mankind. And after creating human beings, we read verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. See, the living God created a very good world because He is a very good God. The creation reflects His character, and throughout the Bible, the goodness of God is declared and affirmed. I, I meant to put these references uh, on the uh, handout, but I, I overlooked it. Uh, but if you want to look it up later, jot down Psalm 107 verse one, uh, Psalm 118 verse one. Uh, there's uh, loads of verses where the Bible says throughout the Bible that God is good. The God of the Bible is a good God and he created a good world but of course that's not how it is today. So why is the world as it is? Well again to quote uh, Chris Wright in this book uh, The God I Don't Understand he says this In one sense there's no mystery at all about the origin of a great deal of suffering and evil in our world human beings suffer in broad terms and circumstances because human beings are sinful. Now remember, we're talking about the global thing here. Now this is not a comment about whether your particular suffering is because of your particular sin. That's not it at all. We're talking about the global thing. And in that sense, the reason there is any suffering in the world is because human beings are sinful. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. This good world was thrown into turmoil because of mankind's rebellion against God. See, in Genesis chapter 2, we see that the Lord God gave Adam one rule, Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one rule. And what an amazing thing that is. God made this wonderful world. And he basically said to Adam, go and play in the garden. You can do whatever you like. There's just one thing. But uh, just the one rule, but the consequences of breaking the rule were clearly stated, end of verse 17, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good good and evil and you will surely die. And then I guess as uh, most of us, if not all of us here in this room know, in chapter 3 Adam did eat of the tree and so death came into the world. And here's the first big point I want you to grasp. Death is the result of sin. Every time death grabs us, we are experiencing the dreadful effects of our rebellion against God. And so death is a terrible thing, which seems such a, a lame and obvious statement. But I mean death, because you know that death is a terrible thing if you've experienced, but I mean death is, is more, more, more terrible than we commonly realise. Uh, Just after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, the the milkman said to me, these were in the days when we had our milk delivered. Um, Some of you may still do that. We get it from the supermarket now. I'm going off the point completely. Um, Anyway, the milkman said this to me. He said, I don't know what all the hysteria is about. I never knew her and never would. It makes no difference to me that she's dead. It was quite a stark comment and and it made me think more deeply about death. Do you remember... Do you remember um, that time when Diana died? There was a remarkable wave of emotion that gripped the nation over her death. And whether we think it was appropriate or or disproportionate, and whether we think there were other factors that saw us as a nation respond as we did, as I look at Jesus' response to death, I can't go along with the milkman. That won't surprise you that I think Jesus is right and the milkman was wrong. Uh, But uh, stay with me. And, um, uh, I mean, he could have been a great theologian, the milkman, but he wasn't. Uh, The point comes from this, John chapter 11. There's no need to turn it up. Uh, But as in John chapter 11, Jesus confronted the death of his friend Lazarus. Do you remember? He came right before the very tomb of Lazarus. In John chapter 11, verse 33 and verse 38, we twice read that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled by death deeply moved it's a very strong word it tells us that jesus was was outraged by death the word has that sense of that gut-wrenching pain that anyone who's lost a loved one knows all about you'll know it because you've experienced it and yet what is strange about that response is that jesus was moments later going to raise lazarus from the dead Jesus had really had the answer to death and yet as he came face to face with death it left him with that gut-wrenching, devastating emptiness that is deep down in your soul. Why? Because death is the result of sin. Death is not right. More than that, death is sin undiluted. This is the result of sin. And so do you see, we should never come to terms with death. Whether we knew Princess Diana or not, or liked her or not, her death and anyone's death should deeply trouble us. My grandmother died when she was 97. And because I've understood death this way, I will not explain her death away by saying that she had a good innings. Death is a terrible thing. Death hurts us so much because it severs loving relationships and loving relationships are so hard to come by. But more than that, death is a terrible thing because it doesn't belong in this world. Like an unwelcome gatecrasher, it has ruined the party and you'll know that. But more than that, Death came into the world because of mankind's rebellion and every time I come face to face with death I am to be deeply moved by it. I am to be reminded of the horror of turning away from God for that is why death is in the world. Every time I experience death I am to see how terrible it is to be out of relationship with our God. Have you ever seen someone die? I have several times because of my job. Just as life ebbs away in death, and you'll see it just the moments after someone has died, life has ebbed away. Just moments after someone dies, uh, when when I die, my body will begin to become stiff and it will be heading towards becoming a rotting shell. And so at that moment, as I see that, the life ebbing away, this rotting shell so I am to begin to see a picture of what it is to be out of relationship with the living God see out of relationship with God I am heading towards destruction and decay and physical death demonstrates that horrible truth that's what I mean when I say death is a terrible thing it is only here because of the consequences of the fall see and uh, that's not the only thing it's not the only consequence of the fall. You see, everything in God's world is affected by sin. Uh, the, the most intimate relationships are compromised. Have a look at uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, where God says to the woman, I, uh, sorry, chapter 3 verse 16, where God says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you'll give birth to children. And this line, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that desire word is not a positive word in Genesis at all. It sounds good, doesn't it? Your desire will be for your husband. What husband doesn't want his wife to desire him? Oh no, it's not used that way. You'll see in chapter 4 verse 7 how the word desire is used in Genesis. It's all about control. And so chapter 3 verse 16 is saying uh, to the wife, you will desire, you will want to control your husband and he will want to rule over you. So even in marriage rather than than it be a relationship of loving submission marriage becomes a battle of him wanting to rule her and her wanting to control him and we've seen that in relationships haven't we? And so the pain of unhappy marriages and the agony of divorce is the result of our rebellion against God. Sin ruins all relationships we see. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 8 Cain kills his brother And so relationships are ruined by by sin. Jealousy and the desire to be the best come in. We view others as our enemies or as our competitors rather than our brothers and our helpers. And so when you have experienced the pain of being walked all over in the workplace and being overlooked for promotion, that all came about because of sin. Sin. In chapter 4, verse 19, then we meet the, the great he-man of, the, of Genesis, Lamech. Now, Lamech thinks he's the bee's knees. He marries two women, even though he should only have had one wife. And so infidelity is in our world, and we experience through sin the overwhelming agony of adultery and being cheated on by those we trust and those we love the most. What's more, Lamech's sin as you read through, you'll see is the beginning of the breakdown of the family and social order. And then there's no need to turn it up, but in Genesis chapter eleven verses one to nine, society becomes so corrupt, society becomes corrupt. that we see mankind uniting in a desire to take the place of God. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's mankind at each other's throats, but they will unite to do one thing, and that is to build a great tower so that they become God. We want to make a man for a name for ourselves. We want to become the best. And here we see that the greed that has contributed so heavily to the banking crisis and the recession that has caused so much misery has its roots in our rebellion against God. Because we're not content in him. We want ourselves to be, we want all the time. Do you see what this means? All the social, political and medical problems in the world stem from mankind's rejection of God. But actually it goes even deeper than that. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 17 to 19 we see that the creation itself has been affected by our rebellion. See, so you look halfway through chapter 3 verse 17 uh, the Lord says to Adam cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food you see because of sin the very creation itself is not what it should be now that is uh, further expounded for us in Romans chapter 8 come with me to Romans chapter 8 the last of our uh, uh, Bible references This morning. It's page 1135 in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, the second of the two readings that Pam read for us. Now, look what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 8 about the creation. The creation is not as it should be. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. The creation itself was subjected to frustration. Then Paul tells us in verse 21, creation is in bondage. Now this frustration, this bondage is all the result of sin. So what we call natural disasters are the consequence of the fall. Tsunamis and earthquakes and floods and disease are part of a restless world frustrated from being in bondage. That's why when we see these things we feel uneasy about them. They shouldn't be there. No, they really shouldn't. How does it come about? Well, I think it's like this. As Adam fell, because Adam, do you remember, was made out of the dust of the earth, so the creation itself was affected, indeed infected, by sin. There is a closer link than we realise between Adam, between us, between humanity and the creation. Now, do you see what all this means? As we look at Romans chapter 8, we see the extent of the suffering because of the problem of sin. Your suffering and mine should never be thought of in purely private terms. Something global has brought about this horrible reality. And any suffering should make us feel the horror of sin. As we see suffering, as we saw all that suffering that we saw on the screen, we should hate sin. We should begin to hate it in ourselves, seeing what it does. The meaning of all misery is that sin is horrific. When I see death and cancer and divorce and poverty and earthquakes and destruction and disease and hurt and pain, it is a statement of the horror of moral evil. It all tells me how bad it is to be out of relationship with God. Sin did it. Sin is that bad. Do you hate sin? I want you to hate sin today. And so what is the solution to all the suffering in the world? Well, again, Romans 8, verse 19. The creation waits for the sons of God to be revealed. Verse 21, the creation will be liberated when the children of God are liberated. And so, verse 23, we eagerly await our adoption as sons of God, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the point don't worry if you don't, it's not complicated. The world is groaning because of Adam's sin and so when Adam's race is redeemed, the creation will be redeemed. And so in the sick and suffering world, whenever we see pain and agony, we shall long for that glorious day when Jesus returns and takes us to be with him for all eternity to that place where there is no more pain or crying or mourning, or death. It's verse 23, you see. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We cannot wait for Jesus to return to redeem us because when that happens, he redeems the world and he makes a completely new world, the new creation, and we should long for that. Don't you long for it when you look at all that stuff on the screen? And you see what else this tells us. It tells us that the solution to the problem of pain and suffering is not environmental, or sociological, or, or, or educational, or medical. It is theological. We will not save the planet through environmental efforts, worthy as they are. We will not solve the problems of society through social reform, or education, or political action. Although all those things have merits. We will not ultimately solve the problems of physical death and suffering through medicine, though medical advances are used by God to bring relief to millions. The problem of suffering is not an environmental or sociological or educational or political or medical issue. At its heart, it is theological. It is about our relationship with our God. It will be solved only and finally through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through the redemption of men and women and the ushering in of a completely new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope that is being spoken of here in Romans 8. When the sons of God are revealed, Romans 8 verses 19 and 20, when the sons of God are revealed, the cosmos will be liberated from the frustration of bondage and decay. That's a great hope to look forward to. But... As I close, if we leave it there, we are left with a huge problem. I wonder if you've noticed the problem. Let me tell you what I've said so far. So far we've said that God is a good God and that he made a good world. But that mankind rebelled against him causing all this suffering. Do you see the problem? Left there it suggests that God was powerless to stop the carnage in the first place. He created this good world. But then mankind stuffed it all up and now we're in this mess and now he's having to try and sort it out. Now that is what is called deism. It is wrong. It is what is called deism. It's a wrong theology. It's the idea that God made the cosmos and then wound up the the universe um, like a, a cosmic watchmaker and then he was powerless to stop it taking its calamitous course. He may have even been sad that it's gone the way it's gone, but he could do nothing to stop it. Now that is deism and it is thoroughly unbiblical. But so far we could be accused of deism. See, so is that it? Was God not able to stop the problem of suffering? Are the origins of suffering only found in humanity's sin? They are, but is that the only place? as we close look again at Romans chapter 8 verse 20 the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice and notice not by the choice of mankind but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage who is this one who subjected the creation to frustration who is this one that brings hope and who will liberate the creation? Well, of course, it is God himself. God subjected the creation to frustration, in hope, in the hope of future liberation. Now, if you're not with me, don't worry, I'll explain. Mankind was responsible for sin entering the world, yes. But there's a tension that we'll need to hold in tension. God was not impotent at that moment when mankind fell. Even at the beginning of the world, indeed before the beginning of the world, God, there was a God who planned to suffer to bring glory to himself. Listen to John Piper on this. He says this, In subjecting the world to futility... God was fulfilling an eternal plan that the revelation of his glory would be seen in the revelation of his grace in the appearance of Christ on the cross. Let me read it again. In subjecting the world to futility, God was fulfilling an eternal plan that the revelation of his glory would be seen in the revelation of his grace in the appearance of Christ on the cross. I'll explain in just a moment. But first, listen to these verses. They're printed on the sheet there on the back page. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. For he, God, chose us in him, in Christ. For God chose us in Christ, listen, before the creation of the world. See what that's saying? Before the world began, we were chosen in Christ Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. It comes again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Join with me, says Paul, in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, God gave grace in Christ Jesus, in his death. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. The lamb that was slain, Jesus, the one who was going to die on the cross from the creation of the world, he was going to die on the cross. Now, do you hear what each verse is saying? God's plan from before the world began was that he would redeem the world through Jesus Christ. God's plan from before the creation of the world was that Christ would come and die on a cross to save us. Before creating the world, God knew that Jesus would have to die on the cross to redeem mankind. Why? Why would God put himself through that and he did. Why would he put himself through such suffering if he knew it was going to happen? Well, the answer is the last phrase of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 that's on the sheet there. Do you see it there? To the praise of his glorious grace. Because of the suffering of Jesus Christ in eternity, we will gaze upon Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, And every day for eternity we will see how great God is. Every day in eternity as we look upon the Lamb who was slain we will see in a way that we could not have seen had he not been the the one who died on the cross how glorious God is. Let me put it like this. In eternity as we gaze upon the slaughtered Lamb of God we won't just have been told that God is gracious we will have seen the riches of his glorious grace in Christ's dying and agonising death for miserable sinners. In eternity, as we gaze upon the slaughtered Lamb of God, we won't have simply been told that God is self-giving, we will have seen the full extent of his self-giving in Christ dying the most horrific death on a cross for us. In eternity, as we gaze upon the slaughtered Lamb of God, we won't simply have been told that God is loving, we will have dem- he will have demonstrated his amazing love in Christ dying on the cross, the most painful death for us, his enemies. Do you see the point? The suffering of Jesus shows us the glory of God in a way that we could never have grasped it had that not happened. And why is that so good? Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As we glorify God, we find ourselves. We actually discover what it is to be alive. We find joy that is not matched anywhere else. And so for Jesus to have gone through that amazing death, we will glorify God as we never could had he not gone through it. It is in the death of Jesus Christ that we see the glory of God and will enjoy him most forever. And so we discover this amazing thing that we will have to hold intention tension that the origins of suffering are in the sinfulness of man, oh yes but also in the glory of God. And over these next weeks we will discover just how glorious, how loving, how amazing God is and indeed how he uses suffering to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.